The King of the One-Liner, the eyebrows from Edinburgh, the British rogue with the Scottish brogue. A man who once famously said, never say never again, Sean Connery cemented the vision of Bond in the eyes of the world, and in doing so, built the foundation for what would be considered one of the most influential franchises in the history of film. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. back again, listeners, to Building a Better Bond. I'm Rupert Carmichael, and joining me today, as he will be for the next few weeks, the famous, the incomparable, the lovely George Lazenby. George, how are you today? Hold on one second, Rupert. Hold on. I'm just, I'm writing a different intro that you can read for me. That was great, but I just wanted something different. Are there one or two S's in Magnificent? Uh, I, well, I, you know, I'm not familiar, George, with the spelling conventions in Australian English. I'm going to put two. I'm going to put two. Here's the note card. You can just start reading right next to the picture of me that I drew with the biceps, where it says, a man who needs no introduction. Should I pronounce the picture to the best of my abilities, George? Or? Yes, I, I think that's a given. So, listeners, uh, introducing today, again, is... A man who seems to be much larger than a normal man. He, he's maybe the size of a small building. He's holding a, in his very muscular arms a half dozen, maybe seven or eight, uh, unclad women. Mm-hmm. He's making a, a lip-pursing uh, facial gesture with one uh, very raised eyebrow. The eyebrow is raised so far that it is actually above his head. The eyebrow is no longer connected to his face biologically speaking. Uh, From that picture, it says, introducing the man who needs no introduction, the magnificent George, in quotes, the man, end quotes, quotes again, the god of sex, end quotes again, Lazenby. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think think that's better. And I appreciate your collaboration, George. If nothing else, you are here with us on this journey to build a better bond because of your creative input something that was so central to the success of your own movie and something that has really kept the franchise together throughout time. We are, this week, making a proper introduction. Last week, we set the stage. We found out what the humble roots of James Bond were, but now we begin in earnest by saying yes to Dr. No, the first movie starring one Sean Connery. George, initial thoughts about the day that the franchise began in proper. Well, as we talked about last episode, I don't think we can even call Barry Nelson's performance Bond, really. So Sean Connery, in the eyes of the public, was the first time Bond was on a silver screen. And, you know, although Barry Nelson, as you said, was the roots, Sean Connery may have been been the sapling, let's say, but then George Lazenby, in, in this continuance, would be the powerful trunk and the, the branches, and perhaps even the leaves, and maybe even the squirrels and the birds 
in the in the leaves and the branches as well. An apt metaphor, George. The bond flower would later bloom, but it had to first grow. And that growth was seen in the eyes of the cinematic world through Sean Connery and his seven iconic films. Some of them count among the best rated Bond movies. Uh, among them, yes. Y- yes, of, of course, among if them. If you don't count mine, it would be among those. You know, listeners, that most rankings of the best ever Bond movies stop at two because one is so universally agreed upon, it's become a waste of electronic ink. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is agreed upon hands down by critics and the masses alike as the number one Bond film starring none other than my co-host, but many of Sean Connery's films round out that top five spot. George, do you have a similar feeling, or is it mostly nostalgia that has got us looking in rose-colored glasses? You know, I never liked wearing rose-colored glasses. They made me a bit nauseous, Mm. but if we're going to put them on, I would say that, yeah, Sean Connery's films were pretty good, and you have to consider where they started. You know, uh, this was the first time that Ian Fleming's work was going to be right up there on the the big screen. And it was a testament to who Sean Connery was that the film even became famous in the first place. Talk a bit about that, George. Dr. No, a strange way to introduce an iconic film. It lacked the obvious title, something like a Casino Royale. For comparison, it required a bit of deduction on the end of the of the viewer. Well, that was actually a nickname that was given to Ian Fleming because he would say no to everything that Sean Connery was in. He did not like Sean Connery. Uh, he did not want him to be James Bond. Of course, the most famous part of this beginning saga, the creative differences between one Sean Connery and the source material, Ian Fleming, it started no other place than where you might imagine it would begin. Suit clothes. The tuxedo. Talk a bit about Sean Connery's tux and how it embodies what was an antagonistic relationship between Fleming and Connery. Well, it's interesting that you use the word body because Sean Connery started out as a bodybuilder. He was in the Mr. Universe pageant, if you can believe it, and that's where he got his start. He had a couple different little film credits to his name, but then they found him for James Bond. They wanted him to be James Bond. Ian Fleming said, no, he's a gargantuan bodybuilder there's no way he is going to be this suave secret agent absolutely true fleming preferred a more effete petite man who could slip through unseen blend in with the crowd connery in his own words a lurking eyebrow-laden beast of a man actually just to prove a point ian fleming to the first day of rehearsal brought a child's tuxedo and said that it was the one that he picked out for James Bond. And he said, here, put this on, Sean. And Sean had to put it on. And of course, he he was a grown man. He's a six foot two bodybuilder. And he was ripping through the tuxedo. And Ian Fleming said, look, we can't, I can't work with this. Fleming famously had brought a team of uh, safari guides to shoot faux tranquilizer darts at Sean Connery as he ripped through the tuxedo saying, my God, it's Kong. He's come to wreak havoc on the set. Famous, if not dramatic moment in film history. And it kicked off on the wrong side of the bed, a relationship that would deteriorate over the many years that Connery portrayed Bond. Eventually though, they did find a tuxedo that fit the man. And this was probably the most quintessential tuxedo. It's what you think of when you think of James Bond. And it was only when he put this tuxedo on that Ian Fleming's girlfriend, if you can believe it, said, look, Ian, he's, this is the guy. He's got the sex appeal for it. 
he's going to be great. And then Ian Fleming saw him and said, okay, I'll acquiesce. We'll do it your way. And let's not even talk about the, the fact that Ian Fleming's girlfriend told him that Sean Connery was sexy enough. That's a different relationship problem in its own. And Ian Fleming addressed this by wanting to be on the set and trying to be in every scene instead of Sean Connery. He, he said, oh, my girlfriend thinks he's sexy. Maybe if I'm James Bond, she'll think I'm sexy. So he went on the set. He would just say, you know what? I'm going to show you, Sean, how this line should be read, but roll the cameras. Then through this, he thought that maybe they'd have enough footage to make a James Bond film where he was James Bond instead. A desperate ploy by a desperate man in desperate times. One is reminded of a retelling of a tale, the Baz Luhrmann picture, Moulin Rouge, which depicts a disgusting financier who inserts himself into the play that's being produced as the rich Maharaja. Now, in this depiction, it is the writer who is the Maharaja himself. Fleming did not like how James Bond won the woman and saved the day in the end. Even though it was an adaption of his own book, he sought to change the screenplay so that the villain, the titular Dr. No, won in the end because he saw himself in that role. Exactly. And when he realized that everyone on the set had no idea what was going on and they didn't realize why Ian Fleming was making these drastic decisions on a whim, he said, okay, I'll turn over creative control to the director, how it should be. And then Dr. No went off without a hitch uh, because Sean Connery through this tuxedo was solidified as the character. I think you'll be able to see this, Rupert, through especially my portrayal of James Bond, when the actor puts on the tuxedo, he becomes James Bond. He becomes the character. We talked about this a little bit last episode. He's not just a guy wearing a tuxedo. He is James Bond. And I, I think to, to prove this point, I wanted to do a little exercise with you. Would you like that? I would be honored. So here's something that I do with my students. I don't have any students right now, but if I did have students, this is an exercise in acting I would do with them. It's called the ketchup experiment. That is why there's an inordinate number of condiments in the studio today. Exactly. So what we're going to do is we're going to do two different scenarios. You're going to approach me and ask the same question, and I'm going to answer you the same way. But one way, I will be George Lazenby, and one way, I will be James Bond. I won't tell you which one, and at the end, you will guess which is which. Does that make sense? I'm completely prepared. I hope it doesn't put you off, George, but I've dreamed of this day. I get that a lot. I get that more than you'd think, actually. Uh, so what you're going to do is you're going to approach me, and we're going to be at a restaurant. I'm going to have a full bottle of ketchup at my table, and you're going to say, excuse me, can I borrow your ketchup? And I'm going to answer you the same way each time. Terrific. Uh, shall I begin? Yes. <clears throat> Approaching. Excuse me, sir, may I Oh, wait, wait, stop, 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 stop. Uh, what, what kind of ketchup is it? Is it Hunt's? Is it Heinz? Is it a glass bottle? Is it plastic? Wrenches? What is it, Rupert? Uh, you're holding a, a fistful as, as an approximate form of measurement of uh, what seems to be Carl's Jr. ketchup packet. doesn't matter what I'm holding, Rupert. It matters what's in your mind's eye. You have oh. to believe it, so I believe it. So what? what is the ketchup that you're picturing in your mind right now? It is a crystal carafe in the shape of your own bust filled uh, with artisanal ketchup made from palmento tomatoes. Okay, that's wrong, but if it works for you, that's fine. Uh, okay, so let's do scenario one. You're going to approach me and ask me for the ketchup. <clears throat> Approaching. Excuse me, sir. Uh, my table is without ketchup. May I borrow yours? No. Okay, let's go, go right into scenario two. Same, same question. Okay, I'm, I'm dealing emotionally with that, so I, I, I apologize in advance if this read is any less professional. <clears throat> 
Excuse me, sir. My own table is without ketchup. May I borrow yours? No. Okay, so do you see what I did there? In your opinion, when was I James Bond? When was I George Lazenby? One or two? I believe uh, I felt a more James Bond quality in the second approach. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Rupert. I'm going to say that I did put my foot on the gas pedal. I I weighted the scales just a little bit so it would be more obvious to you. But in in a real scenario, it would be even more subtle than that. But it's still evident when when the actor is there and when the character is there. Listeners, you just witnessed the master in action. Consider yourselves educated. I know I consider it a privilege to be introduced to these theories, these what I would call breakthroughs in acting science, just some of the many insights George Lazenby has lended the world of film. Now, George, how does this apply? I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Sean Connery was James Bond when he had that suit on, Mm. just like I was. A lot of people say that Sean Connery, you know, because he didn't have a lot of acting experience beforehand, uh, and then his career sort of took off afterwards, people call him a jack-of-all-trades. But if John Connery is a jack-of-all-trades, I I might point out that I might be a king of all trades. And if I'm a jack-of-all-trades, maybe Sean Connery is a a ten or a nine of all trades. We're speaking in the metaphor uh, of a deck of playing cards. I'm now catching up. I'm sorry? George, apparently ace is low in this metaphor, but what I'm high on is this moment, this, this cemention of when Sean Connery put on the jacket And in that moment, it was like he tore it away from Ian Fleming. This is the moment where we really start to divorce ourselves from the creative direction of the author himself. And now we go to the creative direction of the actor. Very true. And you see that just in the posters. We have all the posters laid out on the table here, listeners, of Sean Connery's films. You start with the perfect quintessential black tux with the black bow tie. But as the character and Sean Connery matures, you know, maybe you get a white tux thrown in there. Maybe you have a red boutonniere. By Diamonds Are Forever, you have sort of a casual gray suit. And and that's when the character and the actor start to merge even more. Mm. Uh, I, of course, can't make out tux he's wearing in from Russia with Love. It's covered in Thousand Island dressing. And then Goldfinger, I think, luckily, has been smeared with mustard. But that doesn't really affect the effects in this poster. George, do you have a favorite Sean Connery suit? That's a great question. I think that it might be that gray Diamonds Are Forever suit because it it was very casual, but it was very Sean Connery. It was at a time when Sean Connery was in his 50s, but still hitting on chicks that were half his age. It showed sort of a, a debonair uncaring of, of this character. And, and you see that sort of evolve throughout Sean Connery's films. He wanted a shirt unbuttoned. He wanted a bow tie untied. He wanted the audience to know that he had either just had sex, or was about to, or was thinking about it. He, he wanted to be wet and sweaty in his tuxedo. Truly no man from Scotland has ever glistened quite as gloriously as Mr. Connery. And as his film career progressed, he began to glisten more and more. One can always count on Mr. Connery to glisten, but what about counting on ourselves to listen? One of the most iconic things about Sean Connery's portrayal of this iconic character is his accent. James Bond, of course, always meant to be an international man. But there's another layer. A Scottish brogue and what some might contentiously call a speech impediment. All of it combined to create a lexicon, a flavor of lingo that was completely unique. 
and never matched again. Do you want to talk a bit about the talk about how Sean Connery spoke in his role as Bond? Well, you mentioned the Scottish brogue. I think it's definitely a- another tribute to how good, again, not as good as I was, but how good at the time that first Bond was. We mentioned that Ian Fleming didn't like Connery's portrayal at first, but once he started to see Sean in the role, he actually went and revised his books to include a Scottish lineage for James Bond. That's how much he liked it. People ask me, after On Her Majesty's Secret Service, why didn't he go back and put an Australian lineage story in there too? And it's because I talked him out of it. Uh, He said, George, I, I like Sean Connery but I like you even better. I think his Scottish heritage lent to the story, uh, but I think an Australian Bond would be great. And I said, listen, you've already changed it once. Uh, the fans will be upset if you do that. He really wanted to, though. Uh, I'm reading a quote uh, at the time that you you spoke to Fleming in a interview with Esquire magazine, and it said, mm. Ian, if you flip it more than once, you're playing with it. That's exactly what I said to him. Uh, we had this conversation in a men's room. It goes on to say that abashed Fleming fled the the restroom before you caught up with him said the line again and made him understand that you weren't intending what he thought you were intending if he came out with the next book and there was a big Australian flag on it I wouldn't have cared but it I just wanted him to really think about what he was doing and, and what those fans wanted absolutely to his credit his capitulation toward the creative direction of the Bond series has really served it well over time and let's talk a bit now about how it was shirved, if you will. This is, of course, Sean Connery's blending of S's into the S-H phenome. Yes, uh, I think that, you know, all Scottish people have an affect to the S's, and it really helped James Bond's lines be delivered. Uh, I, I think all of Sean's lines were delivered in a very sort of dry and uncaring way. And his Scottish accent very much lent itself to being able to do that. Well said and and well agreed upon. What were some of these famous deliveries? He is known as the man with a million one-liners. Do you have any one-liners that you consider particularly indicative of Sean Connery's performances? I think something that people always note about Sean Connery's work is his ability as Bond to see something or do something and then make a quip out of it. Something very obvious. So in, let's say, From Washer With Love, a henchman gets electrocuted and he says, positively shocking. <laughs> Still gets me. I, I said some funnier things, but that's neither here nor there. There's the time when he walked in on a woman in a bathtub and she said, I think you have the wrong room. And he says, I think it looks like I'm in the right room. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing that. I don't want to give him too much credit for that one because it was good. Uh, but he really wanted to have these lines come up naturally. You know, he wasn't a naturally gifted speaker. Sean Connery as Bond was. That character gave him that sort of confidence and libido. So as the films progress, he wanted the writers to not give him the exact line, but serve him up the scenario so that he could conjure the line on his own. Do you see what I'm saying here? There's, there's sort of a difference. So as you as you watch the films, you start seeing the people around Bond really serve up something very obvious so he can figure out what that pun is in real time and then make it. Absolutely astute, George. And by the time we got to You Only Live Twice in 1967, We were operating on a completely scriptless script. There were no lines of dialogue written. 
They just threw Mr. Connery into the mix and acted out the movie around him. He improvised his entire performance. But it came at the detriment of all the other actors. Some of his most memorable lines were just pointing out different attributes about women. You know, and diamonds are forever. There's a line and he says about someone's attire. He says, that's quite a nice little nothing you're wearing. You know, it, it doesn't really take much to come up with that. Or there's another instance where he says that a, a woman is blonde or brunette. He just notices that. There's a low barrier to entry for what makes a quip in these later films, is what I'm saying. You couldn't be more right, George. Of course, when we say we've saved time up front writing the script, we're paying for that in blood in the editing room. Connery would often ruin takes by commenting on the most banal of truths, including breaking the fourth wall. He would often be caught saying, we're on the set of a film, or, hey, look, other actors. You know, I broke the fourth wall in my film, but I think it was for the good of the film. It, it was a, a meta reference. Sean Connery was just working with what he had. Uh, he thought that everything was being staged so he could come up with these funny quips and he'd look and see a cameraman, he'd look and see a director, and then they'd have to scrap the whole take because he was talking about something that wasn't actually part of the film. Exactly. And this, of course, progressed throughout the years until it reached a fevered zenith. I take this opportunity to talk about what is one of the many controversies in the history of the franchise. I speak, of course, of Never Say Never Again. In this film, after vowing to never portray Bond again, Connery returns to portray him once more 12 years after Diamonds Are Forever. Of course, famous about this movie, not only that the title of the film is meta-referential, but also that it was mostly accidentally filmed. Connery, so far into his working method that he was, agreed tacitly to allow a film to be produced around him as he lived his normal day-to-day -day life. Yeah, so, so do you remember the ketchup scenario that we did? Uh, yes, it, it will also feature prominently in my diary. I'm glad, but this is the way that they filmed this film. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sean Connery ended and Bond began, but the line was blurry. Mm. So he was able to live his normal life and actors could approach him and they could get a take or he was able to be in a certain situation, something would happen, uh, and then they would get another take. It was all hidden camera. In his later years, Sean Connery could not always discern, even in his own life, when he was Sean and when he was James. Some have said he flew too close to the sun on Golden Wings. The thing that I want to point out about Never Say Never Again, because it's a good film in its own right, in that it took some movie sales away from Roger Moore, and, and I'm all for that. It was a meta-reference and I thought that that was pretty clever. As a lot of people know, I was offered a seven-picture deal to play Bond. And I did one film and left. Mm. So it's hard to talk about, but I did it purposefully. I give credit for Sean Connery coming up with that Never Say Never Again line. I want to say, though, that if I would have done seven films, every single other title would have been that sort of referential. Fascinating, George. We haven't broached the subject before, but... Do you have some of the titles that you would have implemented in mind? Oh, of course. Of course. I, I keep them with me in a little uh, piece of paper in my wallet. Oh, is that laminated, George? Oh, uh, yes. It's hard to fold, but my wallet is very big. So the first film, of course, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, you have to establish it with a, a normal film title first, right? Before you can be meta. Absolutely. The next one would have been, okay, I'll give it another go. Mm -hmm. The third is, sure, let's do it. The fourth was, eh... I, I guess I'll come back. Now, George, for our listeners, could you spell the sound 
that begins that title because, of course, it would have to be on cinema marquees and movie posters. Mm, yes. Uh, so it was Big E, Little E, followed by 15 H's. And in the poster that I drew up here, I would be sort of shooting at the different H's. And are you seducing one of the later H's? Yes, and, and the ellipses that follow it. Ah, you're goosing the ellipses. It's mm-hmm. clear that you're goosing the ellipses. I think you have three or four arms in this poster. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it was the 70s, you know. It was a different take on a movie poster. I think it would have been creative. Now, you've got a few more for us, don't you, George? Yeah, so that would have been the fourth film. The fifth was No Way in Hell. I'm not coming back. See, now, now that seems quite conventional when taken out of context. But it wasn't because it was. It would be designed to keep the audience on their toes. See, mm. if, they, if they see a title, George Lazenby, James Bond, No Way in Hell, I'm not coming back. They'd think, oh, that's interesting. Mm. I know he's mm-hmm. a spy. Is that going to factor in to everyday life? Is that going to factor into the actual world of cinema? What's happening? And it makes them want to go see the film. That's why the sixth one was called Fuck No, I'm Done. And then people were even more on the edge of their seats. And then it really serves up. I wanted to wait about, you know, five or six years before doing my seventh film. And that would be called Never Say Never Again 2, colon, Never Say Never Again Again. Listeners, you're witnessing, of course, the confluence of creative talent. To be Bond, you can't just be a good actor. You can't just be a good speaker. You must be a man talented in all creative aspects of filmmaking, including film titling, including what I must say is the arrestingly artistically advanced sketches for each of these movie posters. I must remark personally on Fuck No. You've drawn yourself nude in a Marco lounger chair. You're drinking out of a, a gallon jug? Is that is that intended to be milk or yeah, a it's different... It's supposed to be milk to the everyday eye, but that would have factored heavily into the plot because it's actually not milk. I don't want to give too much away. Who knows if this movie's going to be made or not. Yeah, absolutely. I One final detail of note on this one. The NC-17 rating is ab- about a quarter of the size of the movie poster. Yes, that's true. Um, I imagined as my movies in the franchise progressed they would get a little more lewd and so Mm. i wanted it's still a family friendly franchise is what i want to say and you want people to be ready if they're taking their kids to this that 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 writing is front and center and i'm doing it for the fans if that didn't give the message then your blatant erection in the poster would have that's the one in in 17 Ah, i see it now on that note i believe it is the perfect opportunity for us to take a brief sojourn Don't go away for too long, because when we return, we talk about what goes in the hand of a man who reignited a franchise. Hello, everyone. This is Rupert Carmichael from Building a Better Bond, here to tell you about an exciting new podcast series from the PBS and the BBC. Chances are, you already know something about it. Living in our overly networked, perpetually plugged-in lives forces us to interact with one particular plug, day in and day out. The USB cable has been the industry standard for electronic compatibility and capability for decades, but nobody ever thinks twice about this little cord with the three-pronged logo. A trident of technology, the USB has quietly attached itself into our electronics for too long without recognition. Cable Guys is an 80-part miniseries investigating a product that truly puts the U, the S, and the B in ubiquitous coming soon through cables near you hey there bond fans it's your pal laz here with another great offer as long as there have been movies there have been movie posters 
It's how fans can easily see the title, the actors in it, their names, and the names of various production studios in tiny type at the bottom. Synonymous with every Bond film is each one's iconic poster, but until now, I've only been on one of them. That's why with the help of PBS and the BBC, I've been photoshopped into every Bond poster to date. Now you get the best of both worlds and graphic and captivating posters graced with the best man ever to bear the name Bond. Get the entire set for full price by entering the offer code GEORGIEBOY at bbc.com for a limited time. Now, let's get back to building a better bond. Welcome back, listeners. Now, it's not our convention to do so, but we have not done due diligence. We realize we've missed one of the most formative catchphrases from Sean Connery's early Bond career. I don't think I missed it. I knew it was there. I was just waiting for this segment, Rupert. You have to give us some credit for that. The fault is my own, and one of the production assistants, who I will determine later that will be fired. In the interim, let's talk about a phrase that has become synonymous with Bond itself. George, what am I alluding to? Do you want me to deliver it as George Lysenby, or do you want me to deliver it as Bond? Yeah, I'll do, I'll do it both ways, and then you can tell me which is which. I'm literally strapping in. I had um, my... My chair designed with a seatbelt, so for these moments, I wouldn't have to be metaphorical when I would say these things to you. I'm glad you did, because you might be knocked out of your seat, out of the recording studio, once I deliver these lines to you. I don't think I've actually delivered a James Bond line to you right in front of your face yet, Rupert, so it's going to be interesting to see how you react, because uh, I'm going to need your help with this. You're going to be the barkeep in this scenario, and you're going to ask if I want something to drink. Oh, you low there! Can I get you? Wait, wait, wait. What the fuck are you doing? I apologize, George. No, you, you I, can't, I you thought... can't overshadow Bond, you know, because then I would have to match that enthusiasm. So you you have to just play it very flat, very flat. You know, you're a background character. You, you're an, an uncredited extra at this point. Really. I apologize, George. I attempted to uh, ascend uh, near near to your energy, and I, I wanted to bring something to the read, but... You're right. Uh, one must know one's place. I will assume the role of a, a quiet uh, man behind the bar. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, sir. May I, think I you, you need to give it a little bit more than that. Here we go again. Excuse me, sir. Can I get you a drink? Ah, uh, yes, a martini, shaken, not stirred. Chills. Okay, let's run this the scenario again. Excuse me, sir. May I get you a drink? Ah, uh, yes, a martini, shaken, not stirred. Hmm. So, Rupert, where was I George Lazenby, and where was I James Bond? Now, see, George, um, I believe this time you were you were Bond in, in your first read. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, mm. and I commend you for this, because I did lighten up on the gas pedal a little bit. I made it even more subtle, and you're still reading it, which is, is the main key, you know? You have to make it subtle, yet overt. George, I, I can't think of a better descriptor for your own personality. Subtle, yet overt. And, and charming, and good-looking. I guess that wouldn't really be a personality trait, but if you want to do the whole the whole experience, just to add on to what you were saying, I, I mean. Are there other descriptors, George, while we're being comprehensive? Mm, I would say, you know, better than Sean Connery. Mm. Uh, I would say, you got to say Australian, I would assume, in mm-hmm. there, just to, to make sure everyone knows who you're talking about. Uh, I would say quick-witted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'll leave it at that. I'm a humble guy. I don't want to just be talking about myself the whole time. You know, Sean Connery is not actually his real name, by the way. I am... Um, elaborate on that. His real name is Thomas Sean Connery. Sean, of course, not only being a, a, a more brief moniker, but also showcasing his trademark SH pronunciation. He wanted to do that. 
Uh, but I think it's just be who you really are is the main takeaway. You know, if, if, if he wanted to be Sean Connery, fine, but he was Thomas Connery. What I'm saying is if you're a good enough actor, you can make any name work. What I will say about this is before Her Majesty's Secret Service came out, I wanted to change my name. My first acting credit, I wanted to change my name. Do you know what I want to change it to? What's that, George? My idea was Bang Saint Cool. Uh, I get the double meaning with Bang there. And because I'm cool. And then we had the posters all printed out, the marquees. We, we had the letters ordered, if you can believe it. Uh, and, and then I went back. I said, you know what? Bang Saint Cool is memorable because it's a cool name. But if I'm going to be a serious actor and the best James Bond ever, I can make any name work. I can make George Lazenby work. And I did. In fact, you doubled down as a perhaps homage or a call of challenge to Mr. Connery. You changed your middle name to George. So you are George George Lazenby. Exactly. If that's not sending a message, I don't know what is. And of course, circuitously, we return to the line that made so many people change the way they ordered a drink. Shaken, not stirred, speaks to the beginning in earnest of the Bond Martini Talk about it, George. What does it mean to shake and not stir a martini? And what does it mean to mean... Well, Rupert, I think it gets back to this whole idea of ad-lib in Sean Connery's performance. Uh, and sometimes it was to the detriment, I would say, most of the time. But sometimes it was effective. Being a Scot, Sean Connery knew his drinks and he knew how to drink. And I think this worked to his benefit on the set. Because originally, James Bond had a martini that he would order. But in the script, the original line was, stir it up, big boy. And it quickly became evident that the writers of the film had never ordered a martini before and didn't know how it was supposed to be made. Because nobody stirs a martini. You have to shake a martini in a martini shaker. So Sean Connery knew this. He's, he read the line. He disregarded it. And he, just as a jab at the writers, when the line came up, he said, shaken, not stirred. These writers suck. And so... <laughs> They, they took out, they truncated the line, but they kept in the shake and not stir because everybody loved it. Few people know that in the 60s into the early 70s, there was a resurgence of the prohibitionary movement centered around Hollywood. Teetotalers of a new era, they called themselves the dry writers, and it was evident that some of these had made their way, infiltrated the Bond set. Many of the alcohol-related scenes... As you mentioned, Stir It Up Big Boy, among the most egregious examples. But many of the other alcoholic scenes just had something off about them. They smacked of a young child thinking, imagining what it might be like to drink a cocktail. A lot of the scenes in the bars in, you know, in, in Dr. No and You'll Only Live Twice, Bond will walk in and there are people in trench coats and fedoras drinking out of little uh, juice box cartons that say wine written on them because this is what the writers just imagined grown-ups would do in a bar and sean connery changed all that mm, mm -hmm. who can forget when jill masterson in goldfinger ordered a chocolate milk and vodka thankfully in the dvd release of the movie this was changed to be a black russian which given the film quality at the time could have been mistaken. It was things like this that made it evident that the actor needed to put his own mark on the franchise. And I think the mixology of the James Bond lore really owes its roots to Sean Connery, who, as you mentioned, 
was an enthusiastic drinker in his own right. Might even call him a drunk. And many did. Now, listeners, if you're in the know of Hollywood how-to-do, you might be aware that often actors are given stunt drinks, especially when they need to film a scene when they consume alcohol over and over again. This was not the case with Mr. Connery, who insisted that every drink be, quote-unquote, live. Exactly, and it, it definitely was a detriment to his physical being. A man who was once a bodybuilder ended up developing a, a beer belly and martini fingers, they call it. It goes straight to your fingers. It was hard because drinking a, a martini that a mixologist has made was one thing, but the writers didn't hire the correct people. So Sean Connery would order a martini and all this other shit would be in it, like chocolate milk, uh, Skittles, uh, who knows what else. And so he'd be drinking these things because he'd want to do it live. Uh, and it would just cause him severe, severe indigestion. A man who was willing to lay down his gastrointestinal life for the role of a lifetime. One must admire at least the sacrifice that Sean Connery made. And as you mentioned, we cannot talk about the drinks of James Bond without talking about the effects of those drinks. Sean Connery, his tolerance was legendary, but in time it eventually caught up with him. He became what some described as a levacious, rotund, corpulent man of mystery. Because there were so many takes of these drinking scenes, because of the writers, because they didn't know what they were doing, they had to constantly make sure that Sean was awake and conscious. For instance, in Goldfinger, when he's strapped to the table and the laser beam is going to cut him in half. The laser beam isn't there because they thought that would be a diabolical method of deconstruction. It was there so that Sean could have something to focus on because his eyes were cross-eyed at that point. After having one too many baby food coladas, Sean Connery was nearly unconscious. Thankfully, these sins were rectified by the time he portrayed Bond in You Only Live Twice, but by then the damage was done not only to his liver, but to his physique. It was said that the Bond belt size increased four sizes while Connery was in office. And I think that's a good bookend. Remember that first child-sized tuxedo that Ian Fleming brought on the set and said, this is who I want to be Bond, a size mm. 16 small suit. Mm. And then it, the pendulum swings the opposite way. And then it's got to swing back with the amazing physique that I brought to the table. And swing it did, much like that giant belt swings on display in the Lancaster Museum of James Bond. We swing now into a discussion about something a little less of the body. I speak, of course, of the technology that was introduced into the James Bond franchise. Like many things in these early movies, it sowed the seed of a great triumph later in film, James Bond would eventually become to be known for this technology, and it was on display early on. Here, in Dr. No, Thunderball, and Diamonds Are Forever, you already mentioned the laser beam. But what about James Bond's own gadgetry, George? Yes, that's a great point, Rupert. With the introduction of Sean Connery into the film franchise, you also have the introduction of the Q branch at MI6, the people that were making all of his gadgets for him. Uh, the first thing they gave him was the iconic Walter PPK, that pistol that Sean Connery wields in every one of his posters and that James Bond has wielded ever since. They thought that this signature gun was menacing, it was full of mystery, and it was just phallic enough to really portray the character in a gun. You mentioned just phallic enough uh, for good reason. Early designs left on the cutting room floor depict 
a range of penile projectiles, including the Sack Blaster 1400, in which case the trigger was sheathed in a leather pouch. Yes, exactly. Uh, just phallic enough also would have been the name of my eighth Bond film. It's a tragedy that that never came to pass, but coming to pass... Was this PPK something that is now still, to this day, despite the advances in firearm technology, synonymous with the role? And you mentioned the Q branch, of course. Yes, I think, you know, the PPK isn't something they designed necessarily. That was just the gun they paired with Agent 007. Uh, they did make him some amazing gadgets that, by the standards of 1962, would seem amazing. They get more and more mundane as you go down the list, Rupert. Let's take a trip down that list, George. So just off the top of my head, um, Dr. Noor, James Bond has a Geiger counter. Listeners, if you're not familiar, this is a real piece of technology that uh, is available for purchase, even by you, the layman. It reads the amount of nuclear feedback in a given area. Yes, it's a device for measuring radioactivity, and they thought that James Bond could wield it. Uh, in From Washer With Love, he had a pager. And yes, maybe pagers were uh, a thing of the distant future then, but it doesn't really hold up by today's standards. And so that this list in mundane technology just keeps growing to incorporate things that are really everyday objects. You know, that I don't think that you really get the level of innovation until much further on down the line. Not listed are the most mundane. For instance, in Goldfinger, one of the gadgets presented, you'll see this in the deleted features if you watch, listeners, a stapler that produces golden staples. Exactly. A lot of these things, for instance, like the pen gun, let's say, or the underwater camera, and you only live twice, these are things that are clearly either some sort of uh, product placement promotion with Walgreens or something that the writers just came up with while they're walking down the aisles of a checkout aisle. Now, this is a problem that is eventually remedied by none other than George Lazenby himself in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But before then, there was a blip of hope on the proverbial radar. I speak, of course, of Thunderball, hmm. where they had technology consultant Wayne Evanston on the set attempting to remedy these issues. We'll do one of our excerpts here, and I read from Wayne's own testimony. This set was a fucking joke before I showed up. They attempted to put an actual thunder ball in this movie. Can you fucking believe it? A ball that when thrown at someone would shock them. Hello? That's way worse than a basic taser. I'm putting jetpacks in this bitch. I'm putting jetpacks on everyone, end quote. Can I just say, Rupert, I think that our training together is really paying off. When you were reading that quote from Wayne, I couldn't tell for a second where Rupert started and Wayne began. I will throw away all of the awards I've received from the PBS when I get home because that is the finest compliment I've ever been paid. But I think if we dig into what the quote is really saying too and not dwell too much on the praise I gave you, when you get to Thunderball, that's when things start to turn a corner, you know? Jetpacks are a thing of the future, and I think that's the standard of a bottom piece of technology. It's something that doesn't exist today. It's not a fucking pager that you can use in 1982. Truly, if your technology is rivaled by that of the average administrative assistant, 
it's time to get someone else on the job. If you just look up lists of technology in Bond films, one of the pieces of tech in Goldfinger you'll find is a peephole in a bathroom. That's something that you'll find at a truck stop. It's called a glory hole. And they use that as a piece of technology in Goldfinger. So you can see where the level of imagination has evolved over the years. And I think it's for the better. Undoubtedly true. Evolving for the better, perhaps that is a fitting descriptor for Sean Connery's entire Bond career. It must be said, there is a reason many of his films are still thought today as among the best. Among them, not the best. He embodied, for the first time, what it really meant to be Bond. And in doing so, he laid a foundation for Bond to become even better. Of course, he was the thousand steps to the temple of Bond enlightenment that would eventually be reached by George Lazenby. But we must pay homage to laying those steps because Sean Connery figured a lot of things out that needed to be fixed. He was there for the remedy of the martini. He was there for the introduction of real tech. And he, of course, was there for the first meaningful tailoring of the Bond tuxedo. In his initial attempts, eventually, mastery was forged. George, do you have any last thoughts on Sean Connery's portrayal as Bond? I do, Rupert. And it really gets back to everything we've discussed so far about Sean Connery being there first, but that's not necessarily the best. And it reminds me of an old Australian adage. Would you like me to tell you it? I would like nothing more, George. So this adage, it's something that everyone in Australia, where I'm from, learns in school, and it's about a fisherman. So every day, this fisherman would go out on Lake Klingaluga with every other fisherman, but he couldn't catch anything because there was so many fishermen there. It was inundated. He couldn't do anything about it. But eventually... He realized that if he beat everyone out very early in the morning, that he could catch the fish instead. So the next day, he gets up at, let's say, two in the morning, says goodbye to his wife and going out to fish, and he heads out on the lake. And Rupert, it was amazing, okay? He's catching fish after fish after fish after fish. Mm. The only thing is that every time he'd catch one, he'd turn to high-five someone to celebrate, but no one was around. Mm. So he'd gotten the spoils of victory, but his victory was spoiled. I see. So what I'm saying, Rupert, is sometimes being the first isn't the best because you can't relate to anyone else. So sure, Sean Connery, this role made him rich and famous, but he couldn't connect with anyone because he was the only one who truly knew how to be Bond. That is, until I came around. Wow. George, words of wisdom that sum up a 20-year career in the most eloquent of ways. I hope you enjoyed our take on the first take on James Bond. And I hope you join us again next week because we'll be talking about a man, a myth, a legend in the flesh, who was Laz, but certainly not least. I'm Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. (laughs) 